Section C. Private property. The subject, or bearer, of something good, when he has it with mastery over it, i.e. with the power to use it or not to use it, is said to have it with dominion or ownership. The root of the ownership is therefore freedom, and there should be no ownership which is not regulated by its ordination to the last end. The possessor is the master or owner, but strictly speaking there is no absolute ownership or mastery in any creature, since all things in the universe are means in relation to the last end, which is God, and only God is the master or lord of everything. As creator, God is the first cause of the total essay of everything. See chapter 24, section E. Therefore, the creature has no rights in relation to God. God does not owe anything to the creature. On the other hand, the creature has an absolute obligation towards God, since the creature owes everything to God. This means that every just ownership is under God, participated. Otherwise, it is not ownership, but it's corruption. When this mastery of ownership is of material things, it is called property. The first mastery that man has is his freedom of activity. This mastery over his own acts, and consequently over external things, is measured by its ordination to the good. And so, if he possesses material goods, it must be in order to use them for the sake of spiritual goods. See chapter 31, section C, and chapter 32, section C. Property, therefore, whether personal or collective, and property rights are based on the ordination of the good. Consequently, theories which take private property as an absolute right overlook this final ordination to the good. It is lawful and natural that man should own material things, even privately or individually, since they are all at his service. The totality of material goods is for all men. But this does not prevent the individual from having the right to possess some of those external things. He may choose not to exercise that right, but the right continues to exist, although it has to be exercised in the context of the common good, as we have seen. See chapter 25, section E. Aside from private property, we can also speak of common or collective property, as it may exist, for instance, in a family. A family or a group may decide to own all they possess in common collectively, because they choose to do so. But this system of ownership cannot be imposed by force, let alone claiming that it is something required by nature. The individual always retains the natural right to his own private property. And there is also public property, the possession belonging to an entire civil society vested on the state. This kind of property may be fitting or advisable for certain goods, but always as long as it is for the common good. Were it to eliminate private and common property altogether, it would violate the principle of subsidiarity. See chapter 40, section C, and chapter 42, section A. This usually occurs when the state has made itself the ultimate common good and it is accompanied by other manifestations of totalitarianism, contrary to the freedom of men and of the family. On the other hand, private property acts as a stimulant for the better utilization of goods. Nevertheless, it is no more than a particular good, not the common good, and thus, 
it has to be ordained to the common good in order to achieve social justice. See Chapter 38, Section D, in fine. See Chapter 42, Section C, and Chapter 43, Section A. Therefore, the state has the obligation to regulate private property by means of suitable laws that respect the right of the individual and of the family, so that it is not used against the common good.